This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Keith Dotson here, and thanks for listening in on my first ever podcast I'm a professional fine art photographer based out of the Nashville metro area, and I created this podcast as an outlet to share my huge love and passion for photography, and I hope that you enjoy it. Before we get started, let me just do a shameless plug, if you don't mind. Um, I have a photo book, black and white photographs of abandoned places for sale on Amazon. It's called Unloved and Forgotten Fine Art Photographs of Abandoned Places, and it took me about 10 years to put this thing together. So I would love it if you'd go check it out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the description or to search the title on Amazon. And again, it's Keith Dotson, Unloved and Forgotten. In this episode, I have a bizarre story to tell you. I researched a random vintage photograph from an antique store and found a crazy, unexpected personal connection. But first, before we get into that, let's cover a few news updates from the world of photography. First, a sad note. British photographer Terry O'Neill passed away on November 16, 2019 at age 81. O'Neill gained fame shooting celebrities, models, actors, and musicians of the swinging 60s era of London, most notably a little band called the Beatles. O'Neill said he had no idea how to photograph music groups, but since he was the youngest photographer on the staff where he worked and was in a band himself, he was uh, chosen to go shoot this band called the Beatles, and he... uh, Arrived in the studio, which was too dark, so he brought the guys outside to a patio that had like a brick wall around it, and they carried their instruments out, and he snapped a photo of them. And it looks a little awkward. There's not enough room really for the band, and Ringo's standing there holding a cymbal on a stand and a drumstick in his other hand, and it just looks kind of funny, but yet uh, this photograph and the band sold out the newspapers, and that's kind of how he got started on his uh, photography career. He later married actress Faye Dunaway and was a producer for the film Mommy Dearest. He was awarded an honorary fellowship to the Royal Photographic Society in 2004. O'Neill died from prostate cancer, which I can say as a man of a certain age is something that's uh, somewhat terrifying. But the Guardian newspaper published a really nice article about him with many, many samples of his work on November 17th in the Art and Design section. And again, I'll uh, include a link below. There's also a nice uh, piece about him on Wikipedia if you're interested in that. The Guardian also reported this week that artist-photographer Nan Golden organized a die-in protest at London's Victorian Albert Museum over the Sackler naming rights. And if you haven't heard about this big story, the Sacklers are, of course, the family, the wealthy family, I should say that's on the hot seat for the sale of the drug OxyContin, and uh, they're allegedly uh, behind the opioid crisis. And um, they've also been big sponsors of art venues and museums, and there have been lots of galleries named after the Sackler family, and there's been some backlash on that. So Nan Golden taking her stand about the naming of the Sackler uh, Courtyard, I believe it is, at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Also on NPR uh, radio program Fresh Air this week, uh, November 18th edition, actor Rob Pattinson briefly described the process of shooting his new movie, The Lighthouse, which was uh, shot on black and white film using antique 1930s lenses. He said that in order to get those old lenses to work, um, they had to use an exorbitant amount of light. And it was so bright that some of the crew members got sunburned. 
He said the cinematographer used a red filter to bring out details in their faces because it was just blasting them out. This story made me so curious that I did a little research and found um, a couple of interviews with cinematographer Jaron Blaschke, and I'm sorry if I'm mutilating his last name. But anyways, on Deadline, Blaschke said the film was shot on black and white 35mm film using vintage 1930s Bosch and Alam Baltar lenses. And of course, it was shot in square aspect ratio. Blaschke reiterated what uh, Rob Pattinson said about the need for light, saying that uh, black and white film had a light sensitivity about one-tenth of what modern digital filmmaking cameras uh, require. In another interview on Musicbed, uh, Blaschke goes on to add a lot more detail. In fact, there are some great uh, behind-the-scenes production photos on there, too, if you want to check that out on the Musicbed blog, and I'll include a link. Uh, Blaschke's quote is saying that the black and white film has much less latitude than color film. And he said that it's uh, they shot it on Kodak Double X, which came out in 1959. In fact, let me just quote what he said here. And this is a direct quote from Musicbed. Black and white film has much less latitude than color film. Kodak Double X came out in 1959. As far as I'm aware, Kodak hasn't touched it since. It's pretty old technology. Instead of having six stops of shadow latitude, you have about four and a half. Now, that's end quote. Uh, Blaschke said in the interview that color film used in movies has an ISO of about 400. Uh, modern digital alternatives support about 800 ISO, but they shot the lighthouse at 80 ISO, which if you're a photographer, you know is pretty darn low, especially for indoor photography. And so that's why they required so much light. Uh, and he said that even though the film itself looks dark and very shadowy, the set was flooded with light. He said they wanted to keep an authentic black and white look instead of doing what they usually do these days with black and white movies. And, you know, obviously there aren't a lot of black and white movies being made. Um, I know I've read from lots of other stories about movie making that studios do not like black and white movies. They think that nobody wants to see them. Um, I thought the look of The Lighthouse was really cool. But what they usually do in black and white movies is shoot it in color and then desaturate it down to grayscale. Uh, but here in this Musicbed blog, uh, Blaschke provides a lot of great um, information, and it's well worth checking out. And by the way, I've researched Kodak Double X film before, and it turns out that that's the same film that was used by Mel Brooks in the 1974 film Young Frankenstein. So there you go. And finally, our last news item in the news segment of this episode. On November 19th, the art newspaper published an article titled German Parliament Approves Institute for Photographic Legacy based in Dusseldorf. The subtitle says, Government says Institute is necessary to address considerable backlog in securing the visual memory of our society. So it sounds like the German government is setting aside 41 million euros for a new museum to be based in Dusseldorf, pending a contribution from the local government there. Uh, Dusseldorf was selected because some very notable photographers have lived, worked, and taught, in, taught there in the city, uh, including, uh, and again, pardon my pronunciations, but uh, Bernd and Hiller Betcher, Andreas Gursky, and Thomas Struth. The Germans are worried about the preservation of their photographs, it sounds like, and uh, that sounds like a worthy cause to me. After the break, we'll go on to our main topic for this episode. Stay tuned. And now the main topic for this week's episode. I researched a vintage photo from an antique store and found a crazy personal connection. And what happened here, ladies and gentlemen, was I was in an antique store here in Middle Tennessee uh, last week, just outside of Nashville where I live, uh, looking for something else. And while I was walking around, I spotted a uh, 
1800s era cabinet card sitting on a shelf. And you know the ones I'm talking about. If you ever go to antique stores, you see these old postcards and things there. This was an albumin print, uh, sepia tone colored. Uh, on the front, it said Lockman and then had an address in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And um, it caught my eye and I admired it for a minute. It was beautiful print and I snapped a picture of it with my cell phone and went on about my business. And I noticed after I got home that I couldn't stop thinking about this photograph. And uh, I kept looking at the uh, photo on my cell phone of it and decided to research the photographer, Lockman, and just see what I could find about the guy. So I Googled Lockman uh, photography on town, Pennsylvania. And as it turns out on the internet, there's actually quite a bit of information about this guy and his family. It turns out that B. Lockman or Benjamin Lockman uh, was born in 1825 in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. He had two brothers who were both also photographers. Um, his older brother, Charles, was actually pretty notable as a photographer in the 1800s because he took uh, some well-known photographs of Civil War damage at Chambersburg. He was also a doctor and a chemist, uh, which I think probably went hand-in-hand -hand with his photography work because of all the chemicals involved in those days. And um, he was just a well-known and respected person in the community. Now, Benjamin, uh, as the stories say, was a sickly child. In fact, one source said that he had tuberculosis, which I find to be a little hard to believe because he lived until his 80s. But uh, it was suggested that he might have gone into photography as a career because it was a little easier on his constitution physically. But before photography, he and Charles owned a shoe and boot making company in Allentown, and uh, they made hats and other things. And there's actually, curiously, a very nice photograph of this place taken by their other brother, William, that you can find online if you're curious to see just this business from uh, Benjamin Lock Lockman's life. Now, uh, Benjamin Lockman operated a photography studio in Allentown for over 50 years, in fact, uh, probably from the 1850s until maybe as late as 1910. It's a little hard to tell, but he developed a reputation in his later years as the oldest photographer in Allentown or possibly even sometimes he was called the oldest photographer in Pennsylvania. Um, he was uh, married to a woman named Kate in the 1860 census. You could see that he was married to Kate, and they had a couple of kids. Uh, his um, son, William, also went on to become a doctor later in life. And uh, later in life, after Kate passed away, uh, Benjamin lived with his daughter, Ella, for a while, and also with his son, William, and his family in Allentown. Now, um, Here's where the story gets a little weird. First of all, let me describe the photograph to you, and I will include a link down below where you can actually see this if you want to understand what I'm describing. If you'd rather see it than listen to me talk about it, you can uh, go to that link and see it on my blog. But it's a cabinet card or cabinet print, which is about maybe a uh, five by seven size, something like that. As I said, it's an albumin print, and in case you don't know, albumin prints were uh, prints that were made... Uh, they became very popular in the later 1800s, kind of after daguerreotypes and before silver gelatin became a thing. So what they would do is, of course, take glass negatives, and they would use glass negatives to make a print onto photographic paper. And the photographic paper used light-sensitive silver salts and were adhered to a paper with a egg white emulsion. Uh, it was made from egg whites and mixed together with the chemistry and coated onto the paper. And it made really lovely prints. And all the prints I've seen have nice, rich tonality. They've held up well over the years and they have a nice sepia tone color. Um, so in this photograph, there's a picture of a young woman in Victorian dress. She's 
quite attractive. Her hair is pulled in the back, and it gives the impression that she has very uh, uncharacteristically short hair for that time frame. She has very dark hair. She's standing uh, in front of a painted backdrop and behind a wooden banister, which is decorated with, looks like some rose vines have been nailed to the front of it, and they're just sort of randomly hanging around there. And honestly, they look a little withered, but they're beautiful nonetheless. Her right hand is leaning on a book on top of the banister. Her left hand is holding a rolled-up magazine. And she's wearing um, an outfit that I would say matches with what I found on his time frame when he was at the address that's listed on the card, which was between 1885 and 1900. Uh, I, I'm placing this photo just based on my limited ex- uh, knowledge of these kind of things at about 1885, which is right when he first moved into that studio. Young lady's wearing a Victorian dress with a button-up jacket, and there are little tiny buttons running up her abdomen. Uh, she's got a lace collar. She has a black ribbon around her neck with a bow off to one side, and she has another big ribbon in the back on what I guess you would refer to as a bustle. And she's also visibly pregnant. Not really pregnant, but I would guess, you know, a couple of months pregnant in the photograph. And it's really a stunning photo, and um, that's probably why I couldn't get my mind off of it. But there's another connection here, and this is where the story gets a little strange. When I looked up uh, Benjamin Lockman and found his census information, his wife Kate was actually a woman named Catherine Troxell, last name spelled T-R-O-X-E-L-L. My mother's name is Joanne uh, Troxell, T-R-O-X-E-L-L. That was her maiden name. And, of course, Catherine Troxell, Benjamin Lockman's wife, was from Pennsylvania. And my mother's lineage comes down through Pennsylvania. So, as it turns out, this photograph that I found randomly in a a vintage store or in in an antique store was taken by a a guy several states away and probably 140 years ago, approximately, was married to who is probably a very distant cousin of mine back through history. Kind of mind-boggling in a way. And some of my friends have even suggested that maybe I was drawn to this photograph by the family connection, by the energy that's involved in that. I don't want to get mystical. I just think it's pretty crazy coincidence. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for my first ever podcast. I hope uh, that it was enjoyable to some of you and you'll come back. I will work on my pronunciations and my enunciations as time goes by, and hopefully I'll get better at this. Remember, I'm a photographer, not a professional broadcaster, so please cut me a little slack. And and I hope if you find these stories interesting that you'll want to hear more later. I'm doing this because I love photography and I want to share my passion, so please come back. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to visit my website, keithdotson.com.